Business Class, a podcast sponsored by the iBear MBA program of the USC Marshall School of Business. Expert insight into the world of business. This is Dick Drobnik, director of the iBear program in Shanghai at the Intercontinental Hotel with uh, author and consultant uh, James McGregor. Jim, talk to us about the changes going on in China and why the world has to play by Chinese rules. You know, I've been in China almost 30 years now, and I've kind of seen them go from bicycles to Bentleys. And we're now in a, in a situation where China has to change its economy. They have to change the way they do things, and this is a government that's very worried about the future. Having said that, they also have a plan, and that is to move up into higher-end manufacturing. And at the same time, the technology companies, the international technology companies, need China more than ever for the market. And um, China is playing very hard these days. If you want to be here, you want a piece of this market, what are you doing for China? It's, um, you know, you can't rest on your past laurels as you hired this many people or you did this well in paying taxes. It's what are you doing for me tomorrow? Why do you say China has to change? Oh, because they've, um, you know, they had a good run for 30 years, and now this is an economy that's a pile of distortions. They've got demographic uh, problems that are off the charts, pollution, etc. And um, being the low-end manufacturer for toys, textiles, whatever, those days are gone because they've reached the middle-income trap where you, you have to innovate yourself and you have to depend on a, a domestic economy and consumption other than on exports. And so that means you've got to just change the way you do things. You've got to flip a lot of things. And um, that's going to be a difficult transition. But you feel confident they can do it? Um, I think they have plans to do it. We'll see if they have um, the political ability to do it. Because so far, um, every time they try to slow down the economy to make that change, um, they get scared and start goosing it with credit. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I heard an example of uh, the Chinese economy, the political economy of China is like a teenager that feels very strong and very agile and is doing new things and taking risks, um, but is smoking and drinking at the same time, which would equivocate to credit. And um, every time they try to slow down, they put in more credit and they keep going. So it's like, well, I'm still smoking and drinking and things are moving ahead, so where's the problem? I got that from Andy Shea, by the way. I was just said that's Andy Shea at the uh, LA World Affairs Council in Los I, Angeles. I thought it was a brilliant example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, if I'm, an American, if, I'm, if I'm an American CEO and I'm thinking of expanding my business in China or starting a business in China, how do I have to structure my thinking differently than I would have 10 or 15 years ago? Well, let me talk about the people that are here because that's really the situation. It's now market survival. Now, people have been here for 20 years. They had a lot of these companies had huge profits in the late 90s and 2000s because uh, China didn't have those products. Um, I tell them, especially our, uh, the tech and high-end manufacturing companies, I tell them they've got to find a comfortable place between suicide and self-destruction. <laughs> suicide is not admitting things have changed. That you've been coming in for 10 years, you've been meeting people, you've got all these friends, these halpungyo, and you're just rolling along. Um, that is not the case. Things here have changed. Um, self-destruction uh, is giving up your business, saying, oh my God, the government wants this, the government wants that, and backing off and not really assessing what you need to do, what you can do, and being strategic about it. But things have changed here because China's got the power of the market, and China has the power of a government that is, um, let's say, it's very um, strong-armed. 
Okay, so I have to change my thinking, but tell me how I have to change, how do I get my top team of players to think in an un-American way, that we can't be telling them what to do, that we have to develop intelligence on how to work with them? Well, um, uh, America had a great run. It's not over for America, but America had a preeminent place in the world because of World War II and the industrial base we built up and you know the weakness of everybody else. Um, in many ways, it's China's turn today. Now, whether they'll be real successful in the long run, we don't know, but the, the, the sheer size of this country, the power of the people, the, the aggressiveness and the desires and the government's planning um, are formidable. So you have, to, you have to say this is China's day, and how do I participate in that? Well, I protect my company. Well, I protect my IPR. And actually, as an American, I think, well, you help protect the United States on, on our own industries. Do I need Chinese executives at, at senior levels in my company? Can I, can I get along with any American executives uh, here in Shanghai? Actually, I think you need a mix. Um, if you localize too much and it's only Chinese executives, um, it's often how, how you know, they are under great pressure because there's a lot of nationalism going on here. And so whose side are they on? Are they on the side of the Chinese mm -hmm. government or your company? Um, if you have too many foreigners, um, they're too caught up in their own world and, and um, often have a hard time adapting to China. What you need is you need layers. You need layers of foreigners. You need layers of Chinese foreigners reporting to Chinese and vice versa. And again, um, I will, uh, you know, we've got, a, there's a lot of Chinese who have worked for multinationals for 20 years, who have lived overseas for many years. And that's, that's the model of a lot of the executives here today. They're very, you know, they're very bicultural and bilingual and um, they understand both worlds. And as long as they're loyal to your company, um, you can do pretty well. Do, does the, uh, the high-end labor market for Chinese executives, do they stick with one company or do they jump every two or three years for the 10% bonus or 20% bonus that they can get? Well, I know, um, I know both examples. I mean, there are some companies here, some multinationals that have 20-year Chinese executives. And that's because they trained them and they trusted them and they treated them right and, and um, you know, they felt part of the culture. There's other companies that people will bounce for a quick raise. And actually, there's been such a talent shortage here because things have grown so fast. There's a lot of people that are not capable of their jobs that are overpaid and um, too trusted by the multinationals. Well, last night at our dinner, the person sitting to your right, uh, Mr. Zhu, uh, he was sent by Ingersoll Rand to study at the IBEAR program 25 years ago. And he was making 120 uh, renminbi a month this time and he said imagine this they invested over fifty thousand dollars in me how could I ever leave this company and I came back and eventually after five years became CEO but I had so many offers to jump companies but I felt I owe them my life you know I think that's also a generational thing yeah, you know, he's yeah. a guy from the 80s. There's, I know a lot of people like him that are very loyal to their companies because they, they were here when China had nothing, and they saw that the contribution companies and trade associations and universities made. And that generation now is, uh, is retiring. Um, a lot of these younger people have been growing up on anti-foreign nationalism that's been ratcheted up since Tiananmen. All problems in China are caused by foreigners, um, mm -hmm. according to the party. And that's gotten stronger and stronger, and it influences the thinking of these younger people, even if they've been overseas and gotten overseas degrees. Um, so 
his generation, not that there's not some young people like that, but I think that's a generational thing of loyalty that um, may, may, be, um, may be few and far between right now. So as, as an American firm, that's going to make it harder for me to attract and retain the best and the brightest. Um, depends how you treat them. It depends how integrated they are to your operation globally. And actually, uh, it also depends on whether they think you know what you're doing or not. Mm. I've seen more businesses, more foreign businesses here be destroyed by headquarters than by China. But you can always blame China because it's a difficult place, especially Americans, because American companies, they have a, they have a continental-sized economy. Mm. And so they've been able to grow with some very rigid ways of doing things. If you're a European company, in order to grow to any size, you've got to be flexible because you're going across a border day one. So... Um, you know, a lot of these companies, these, these Chinese who are very capable, join them. They understand this market. They won't be listened to because, you know, frankly, we're run by lawyers and accountants and mostly lawyers. It's funny. When I talk to boards of directors, when I talk to American boards of directors, uh, the questions that come back at me are 95% about risk. It's all about risk. If you talk to a Chinese company, it's all about opportunity. Mm-hmm. So the Chinese hear about opportunity. If they're working for a company that is completely um, you know, caught up in worrying about risk, uh, you're not going to hold on to them very long. And so following up on that idea, are the French companies better to work for, the German companies, um, Japanese? Well, foreigners don't work for the Japanese companies. I think that um, it's not so much an ethnic thing as a, or a, you know, a, a kind of company. It's, I think it's an individual company culture. I mean, the Germans have been very good because they're, they're much more long-term planners and they're willing to invest more for the long term. Um, and they've actually done long-term investing in people. They'll take somebody and put them in three or four spots around the world and then bring them back to run things. I, I think they're, from what I've seen, the Germans are much more willing to invest in, in people. Um, but also the Germans are smart in protecting their own economy. You know, the percentage of, um, of, of GDP in manufacturing in Germany is double what it is in America. So they're, you know, they, they're very clear-eyed on what China is doing and how they're handling it, and they look out for their own economy also. Let's switch to um, U.S.-China relations. How, how does U.S.-China relations at, at the broad government-to-government affect the American business community? broadly or particular companies? Well, if, you're, if you are a, a landmark company here like Boeing mm. or Intel or whatever, when, when po- politics are tough between the countries, China will play games with it. It's just, you know, the, the, they always complain about making business political. Well, business is completely political in this country. So that it'll affect that, but um, I think that it's a tool that China will use um, but also, uh, I think there's a lot of, blu- you know, you can call China's bluff. China needs the U.S. more than the U.S. needs China in some industries. And, and um, I think you just got to stand up and, you know, we, we basically need our government to get it together on dealing with China. We have, there's been no leadership, there's no coordination, and China's brilliant. They're playing us like a fiddle. They're playing our open door policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're very open, and and so when we have this arrogance that openness will always win, and China realizes that, and they're playing right into our openness, where they have reform and closing going on here right now. So who's smart in this equation? And the businessmen are caught. And they, in Europe, um, China plays countries against each other. In America, they play companies against each other. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's very, it's it, it's it's really, um, if you t- if you 
take away um, any emotion. It's, it's very interesting to watch how smart they are in playing us. They're, even our bilateral dialogues now uh, are controlled by China because they know we love process. So they get our lawyers and our bureaucrats all tied up in these processes and um, you know, have all these nice talks. And meanwhile, over the horizon, they're doing whatever they want. So these biannual talks with all kinds of secretary cabinet level people are, are counterproductive? They need to be revamped. They need to be revamped. I was in the last uh, strategic and economic dialogue CEO talks. Um, I think what we need is we need an annual two-day Sunnyland-style meeting between the two presidents. Full two days, heavily staffed with an agenda that is supposed to produce deliverables. Then you can take the Joint Commission on Commerce and Trade and you can take the strategic and economic dialogue and revamp them to carry out what the two presidents have agreed to. Because right now it's a dialogue of the deaf. Everybody's talking to each other. The same old, the same old empty rhetoric comes out of each one. And every now and then they'll, they'll find an issue that they can make some progress on just because they got to show something uh, in a press release after the meeting. And the Chinese keep moving forward with what they want to do. Yes. In spite of whatever the talks were. Yes, well, um, I, I actually, Ambassador Barshevsky said this at a meeting in Washington recently. Uh, it was a public meeting. She said, uh, JCCT, that's how they control us. <laughs> Good for Charlene. Yeah, exactly. Talk a bit about the anti-dumping uh, duties that uh, the United States has put on Chinese steel. Is, is, are these dumping duty, anti-dumping duties justified? Are the Chinese thinking of doing anything to cut, reduce their excess capacity? Oh, capacity here is just off the charts. Uh, you know, what happened was in the global financial crisis, uh, China dumped all the stimulus money into the economy, state banks, into state industry, and they all just expanded like hell, expanding for yesterday's economy. Mm. And then, you know, then when it's all over, all they have so much capacity on what to do with it. Yeah, damn right they're dumping. The, um, the excess, we did a study on this uh, earlier this year. The excess capacity in cement in China, the difference between what they produce and what they have Consume. facility to produce, is enough to build a four-lane concrete highway around the world 30 times. The excess capacity in steel, the annual excess capacity in steel, you can build 2,200 Bay Area bridges. Now, wait a minute. Go back to the cement. The excess capacity is defined by production capability and actual production. So yes. actual production is much lower than capability. Oh yeah. And actual production is much higher than domestic consumption. Yeah. So it's got to go out. Yes. But cement is a different matter because that doesn't go out. Ship. That's local. But uh, steel, aluminum, glass. Um, you know, China is working to bring down excess capacity, but unlike America, China cares about jobs. Um, so it's hard to fault China, but they're, yeah, they'll, uh, they'll, dump as, they'll dump as much as they can in order to keep people working. So this, this, this steel dumping, these are by state-owned enterprises that don't need to make a profit, and so they can, they can sell it below, below cost, or is the government subsidizing their costs so much that their sales price is still exceeding their They'll cost. bring the price down as low as they have to to keep people working. Okay. Um, you know, whether it's subsidies or, you know, Whatever mechanism the Chinese government uses, it's not a market-based system. Well, it's free water or free electricity or sure um, would reduce my costs a lot. Sure, they're, I mean they are, they. It's obvious they're dumping, and they'll 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 profess they're not until the day's end. But China is bringing down capacity, but it is so so off the charts. It's going to take a long time. How do they bring it down? Do they actually shutter the plants? 
Yeah, they're shuttering. Um, they're shuttering some of the most inefficient ones. But you know, when Zhu Rongji laid off about 50 million people when he re- reorganized SOEs before, it was a booming economy, um, and also uh, social media wasn't around, and mm. the workers did not think they had the rights they do now. And um, so, if you you know if you close down a steel plant in a town now. Um, you not only hurt the workers in that in that plant, but in the restaurants and in the suppliers, the whole ecosystem takes a hit. And a lot of these are the main, you know, the main employer for a whole region and the main economic activity. So it's not so easy to do now. It's not so easy at all. And they don't have the, um, you know, they don't have the jobs um, waiting for them because you know they've got a whole young demographic that's filling these service jobs. And service jobs pay just so much less than than any manufacturing. In your most recent book, No Ancient Wisdom, No Followers, uh, you have a quote from Zhu Rongji describing state-owned enterprises. Do you remember what the quote is? One man works, one man watches, one man causes trouble. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I think the there's I mean some of these we have to we have, you have to differentiate you know there's other, there's quite a few state-owned enterprises that are really good companies they're um, ISO nine thousand whatever um, and a lot of them are provincial companies or local companies run by entrepreneurs who put the put on they got die home mouths they put on a red hat they got themselves under a piece of the government to protect themselves when it wasn't so kosher to be a big business person. The ones that I'm very critical of are the big state-owned monopolistic central SOEs. Just they just rob, they just rob value from the economy, and they employ a lot of the elite, um, and they also cost consumers a lot of money because they don't provide efficient services, whether that's the banks or the telecos or on and on and on. Well, that'll be the subject of our next interview when you come to Los Angeles. Um, thank you very much, and let's go meet our students. Okay, sounds good. Business Class, expert insight into the world of business. The host is Dick Drobnik, producer Pankaj Bhushan, director Dan Griffin, web developer Rick Pine, and I am Robin Garthwaite.